Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Chris Pichet, who is the CEO and founder of Smarter AI. And we're going to be talking to Chris about something called AI powered cameras, AI infrastructure, maybe fully autonomous vehicles and the future of AI cameras and unmanned systems. But before we do that, I want to say hi to Chris. Chris, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Mark. Hey, it's my pleasure. And whereabouts are you located? Greatest city in the world, Las Vegas, Nevada. Really? Okay. (laughs) That's interesting because I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I saw a couple other cities. And so I was like, okay, you did live in Singapore for a while, right? Yeah, I lived in Singapore from 2015 until 2020. Okay. I was there from 2008 to 2012, been there going there off and on for many years for business. But what's the biggest contrast for you, Singapore and the greatest city in the world, Las Vegas? <laughs> I'll say breakfast. <laughs> well, okay. great, great, great breakfast in Las Vegas. Yeah. Do you get those like those free local breakfasts? I mean, the locals get a lot of good deals, right? I don't know about free, but maybe, maybe a dollar or two. Well, that's pretty much free these days. I looked at your LinkedIn profile and you've worked for a variety of different ventures, different companies, and se- several of them are in the AI space. Why don't you just give me a little bit, a bit of background about how you got into the space and exactly what does Smarter AI do? Sure. So about 10 years ago, I was running a small company in Canada where I'm from that was called Eyeball Networks. And we were the world leaders in something called Natraversal. So in other words, the world leaders in something uh, you know, nobody totally heard of. <laughs> I could just make up something. I could be the world leader in it because like, oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> we, were the, we were the world leaders in, in something most people have never heard of. But fortunately for us, it turned out that Natraversal was a really important technology for smartphones. Mm-hmm. And so about 10 years ago, our Natraversal product was acquired by another great Canadian company called BlackBerry. Oh, yeah. And we became a very small part of the BlackBerry smartphone. Awesome. Can you just back up and explain what that technology, the Natraversal, is or does? Sure. So basically, in any kind of voice over IP or video telephony call, like what you and I are doing now, in most cases, the system has to traverse a couple of NATs. So NAT stands for Network Address Translation. It's a component of most routers or most firewalls. Well, a couple of reasons for NATs. One reason is shortage of IP addresses. Mm-hmm. So when the internet was first designed, the founding fathers of the of the internet probably did not anticipate. It's never going to catch on. There will just be a few of these addresses. <laughs> yeah, I don't, they, they, I don't think they anticipated such wide-scale use of the internet. And so IPv4 just doesn't have enough capacity for all of the internet-connected computers and and mobile devices these days. So that was one of the original reasons for network address translation was essentially to multiplex many uh, internet-connected devices onto a single public IP address. But then, of course, we're here to talk about security today. An added benefit of network address translation is that it hides the public IP, sorry, the, the private IP address of my computer or my mobile device from whoever I'm communicating with on the internet. And so for those two reasons, network address translation is built into all sorts of routers and firewalls in in the backbone of the internet, including the part of the backbone that connects mobile devices to the internet. And so for that reason, 
when BlackBerry decided to launch a, a smartphone in response to the, the iPhone. And one of the, what they thought was one of the killer features of the iPhone was, of course, FaceTime. BlackBerry at the time had something called BlackBerry Messenger, which was mm -hmm. extremely popular for text messaging. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to enhance BlackBerry Messenger with voice and video calling to be competitive with FaceTime and to be a killer feature or a killer app for the BlackBerry smartphone. But in order for that BlackBerry video feature to work, it needed to support Natraversal. It had to have a way to get the voice and video packets across these NATs that are everywhere on the internet. Natraversal. I'm All Networks being the, the world leader in Natraversal. Our product was acquired by BlackBerry, incorporated into, I think at the time they were just calling it BlackBerry OS. That was basically the BlackBerry yeah. version of Android or the BlackBerry version of iOS. So it was incorporated into the BlackBerry OS as well as some of the communications infrastructure that BlackBerry was operating at the time to, to authenticate and provide services to BlackBerry phones. And That's so awesome. anyway, long introduction, but and let me just stop you there. No, because I think everything's all connected here because you were in Singapore. I was in Singapore. I actually had a BlackBerry phone. I was working for a Swiss company. We had a lot of customers in the banking sector. So yeah big requirement for security. So they're like, no, 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 you can't have your iPhone. You've got to use a BlackBerry device. And I remember, I'm, I'm still like, my self-esteem is still not fully recovered, but I was hanging out with a bunch of friends down at Clarkie having beers and everybody had their super slick iPhones. And I brought out this big silver BlackBerry and people were like, what is that? <laughs> they're like, is that a Soviet era kind of Soviet device or something? But it was all, hey, it's secure, man. But did it, did it have the keyboard? Did it have the yeah, It did. It did. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. Man. <laughs> right. But anyway, please continue. So that's that led into. Well, so I spent about a year helping BlackBerry to integrate our NAT traversal into the operating system and, and into BlackBerry Messenger and getting the smartphone product launched. And so I had a front row seat to how quickly a market could be disrupted mm -hmm. by a technology transformation. So at the beginning of the of this one year that I spent with BlackBerry, their stock price was, if I recall, something more than $100. The, the market cap was, I think, $20 or $30 billion, which at the time was one of the biggest companies in the world, and I think by far the biggest company in Canada. And by the end of one year with BlackBerry, the stock price was down to, I think, $6. Oh my God. And I think I remember that year. Yep. Yeah. You, everybody <laughs> watching and listening can do the math. It's about a 95% reduction in one year. Mm -hmm. and it was all basically because in terms of the, like the key metric for BlackBerry and for anybody in that business is what they call daily activations. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is think of the time BlackBerry had 50 or 60 million active subscribers and a typical mobile phone or smartphone has a life cycle of two to three years. Mm -hmm. So just to use some round numbers and make the math simple, let's assume that BlackBerry is going to lose 100,000 subscribers every day, right? right? Just because my phone is too old, my, my buddies are making fun of me when we're drinking beer, <laughs> I need to upgrade to something. <laughs> <laughs> I need to upgrade. I don't know if you have kids, had kids then or have kids now, but for me, that's my kids getting their hands on one of my phones and wrecking havoc is probably the most common reason why I upgrade one of my phones these days. Mm -hmm. 
but anyway, so if our, if our, if our, if we're losing, if we're churning a hundred thousand customers in a day, then in order to just maintain our, our, our customer base, we have to be activating a hundred thousand new customers. And of course we want to grow. So we want to do something in excess of a hundred thousand new customers. And what had happened was during that, that one year that I was with BlackBerry, these daily activations just fell off a cliff. And because people, I guess your buddies were ahead of the curve, <laughs> they were churning their Blackberries. And another interesting thing though, is I think I remember when all this happened, but one of the markets that was stubbornly bullish on BlackBerry was Indonesia. And I can't remember the reason why, yes. but the Indonesian market for, for held out for several years. Yeah, I think Apple, and rightfully so, was lauded for a lot of the engineering or product innovations in the iPhone. But something that they did, I think, equally well, if not maybe even better than the, than the engineering or product innovations, was the business model innovations. Mm-hmm. And you, you may recall at the time that, that, the, that the iPhone was introduced, it was quite literally laughed at. By, by executives from Microsoft, Nokia, BlackBerry. They, they basically scoffed at it and said, this is a nice device. Number one, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cripple the, the mobile networks. It pulls way too much data. The networks aren't going to be able to support it. And number two, who the hell is going to spend eight or $900 on a, on a phone? Nobody's going to spend eight or $900 on a phone. So something that Apple did really well is they basically went around to the second and third place mobile operators in countries all over the world. And they said, look, we have a chance for you to leapfrog your competition. And all you have to do is hand over your entire marketing budget for the next three years. Okay. Give us your marketing budget for the next three years. We have this advertising campaign for iPhones and we'll basically take your marketing budget and, and put it behind our iPhone marketing. And in exchange, we're going to give your number two or number three mobile carrier, we're going to give you the exclusive right to sell iPhones for three years. Mm-hmm. And since most people turn their phones in less than three years, we're going to create so much demand for these iPhones that people aren't going to care whether you're AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile. They're just going to want the iPhone. That iPhone. Yep. And so they're going to, they're going to switch and. You're going to leapfrog your competitor. And at the end of three years, you're going to be, you know, number one in your market. Obviously it was extremely successful. But getting back to your point about Indonesia. Yeah. I was, I was aware of that both at my time with BlackBerry and also during the, the five years or so that I lived in Singapore for, mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah. Be like the last market that was using BlackBerry phones in any meaningful way. And I think the last market that was using BlackBerry Messenger was Indonesia. I don't know the reason why, but I think it has to be, it must have something to do with relationships, business relationships that, that BlackBerry was able to establish and maintain with the, the local carriers. I remember something along the lines of just the coverage that the devices had in Indonesia was superior to what I, Apple, the iPhones could get at the time. And maybe it was because they had the relationship with the pr- predominant carrier. I, I don't recall, but yeah, maybe, maybe. It, was, it, was, it was very interesting. And so when I went to Indonesia, nobody laughed at me. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
Anyway, so that led to... Uh, anyway, so I saw how quickly, you know, li- literally in one year, BlackBerry lost about 95% of its, of its market cap. And if you looked at their income statement or their balance sheet, it hadn't changed very much. The, the main thing that had changed was these daily activations. And essentially, the writing was on the wall that there were another two to three years left in the BlackBerry phone business. And after that, it was going to go to zero. And so fast forward a few years, when I was done with my time at BlackBerry, and then in between, I'd spent a few years in Singapore helping a friend of mine who had founded a fintech company. And then eventually, I decided that I wanted one more kick at the can myself, so to speak. So I had to think of a business opportunity that was sort of in my wheelhouse in terms of my skill set. So I needed something to do with computer networking and network multimedia technologies. Thinking back to my time at BlackBerry, I wanted something where there was on the horizon, I could see a technology transformation that would potentially lead to a market disruption. So in other words, I wanted to do something with the skills or the knowledge that that I have when it comes to computer networks and and multimedia. And and I wanted to do something where there was an opportunity to transform the technology and, and disrupt a market. And after a few months of deep thinking, I came to the conclusion that the same thing that had happened now 10 years ago in the phone business was about to happen in the camera business. So if you think about it, 10 years ago when you're sitting in Clark Key with your friends, with your, your, your Blackberry, maybe some other friends of yours had the Nokia, the Motorola flip phone, Ericsson phones, all these, all these feature phones. These phones could essentially do two things. They could make a call or send a text message. That's it. And back then, I probably, I don't know about you, but I probably used my, my BlackBerry or my Nokia phone maybe five minutes a day. A couple of text messages, a couple of phone calls, that was it. Today, I think I've got four of these smartphones now. And I think I probably use them instead of five minutes a day, I probably use them five hours a day. And the reason for that is they're so much more useful. They can do so many, instead of doing two things, they can do 200 things mm-hmm. or 2,000 things. So I saw an opportunity or I foresaw that the same thing would happen in cameras. So if you think about it, legacy cameras, just like feature phones, they do two things. They either display the video as it's happening on a screen, or they record it on a disc, right? And because they can only do these two things with the video, even though there's lots of valuable data, lots of valuable insights in there, most of it doesn't get acted on because the video just doesn't get watched and it gets stored and then eventually it gets purged. And I thought that thanks to a couple of enabling technologies, namely neural networks and neural network accelerators, it would soon be feasible to make AI cameras at a low enough cost and with enough horsepower to really be useful. And I thought that in the same way that smartphones transformed and then disrupted the the phone market, I thought that these AI cameras would do the same thing to the camera market. So Instead of having video that is displayed on a screen or stored on a disk, but it never really gets analyzed and doesn't get the insights don't get acted on. If AI cameras could see and listen and understand what's happening around them, and then they could let us know when something important or something interesting is happening. I, I thought that would be similar to the transformation and lead to a disruption similar to what happened in the phone business. 
So can you maybe walk me through a use case? I'm assuming that you would train the AI camera to, for example, if you're driving a car and something runs in front of the car, it does a signal or something like this. This is probably a basic thing. Or if, if it's, I don't know, walk me through a use case of an AI sure. camera. Yeah. Well, so there's many use cases, but some of the common ones that, that most people are going to be familiar with is counting people, recognizing people, counting cars, recognizing cars and recognizing roads and different traffic infrastructure like stop signs and lanes on the road and that sort of thing. And these are all the building blocks of one of the topics that, that we'll get into in a little bit here, which is autonomous driving. So autonomous mm -hmm. driving is based entirely on, on the idea or on the, on, on the premise that the car can see and understand its surroundings and recognize these kinds of objects, which can then be used for navigating the vehicle. How far are we out from fully autonomous vehicles? You can say, given context, because I understand that they're more effective in certain scenarios than they are in others. The truck example is, hey, they're pretty good on the open highway, but you need somebody for that last mile to drive in heavy traffic. But in terms of just like normal passenger cars, how far out are we? That's a really interesting question. So I think in terms of the the technology, I think I think we're... We're either there or we're very close to being there to having technology that works well enough. Then the question becomes, how quickly will that technology be deployed and be adopted? But there's a couple of interesting questions about that. And one of the interesting questions is actually a social, it's a, it's a societal or social question. And Tesla, Tesla made a very interesting comment. I think it was last week. And their comment was, they were asked the same question, how much more quickly are you, are you going to roll out your, your self-driving technology? And the, the, the preface to their answer was, when the technology is 10 times safer than a human driver. And that's really interesting because Elon Musk has very famously for the last, I don't know how many years, six or eight years, He's been saying this is the year or next year is the year that we're going to deploy the full self-driving. And I think it was three or four years ago, he said, this is the year a Tesla is going to drive from Los Angeles to New York or New York to Los Angeles, completely based on autonomous driving. And of course, that hasn't happened yet. And the thing that he understood was the technology. But I think the thing that he failed to take into account was the double standard that we have for accidents or collisions that are caused by humans, human drivers, versus accidents or collisions that are caused by autonomous drivers. And so even here in, in the greatest city in the world in Las Vegas, there's car accidents that happen all day, every day. It's not newsworthy. But if a Tesla has an yeah, issue... <laughs> one Tesla is involved in an accident. It's front page news. And not only is it front, front page news, there's an immediate assumption that the accident was caused by the Tesla FSD system, right? Or the batteries blew up. Hey. Oh, exactly. Or the battery caught on fire. So the thing that Elon didn't understand is he didn't understand the, 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 the threshold or the standard that needed to be achieved in order for the autonomous driving to be, to be widely accepted. And that's a pretty high bar. And I think I like the 10 to 1 kind of rule there, but I don't even think that's going to be enough, seriously, because 
you get into these ethical situations where if I'm driving down the road yeah. and a lady pushing her baby buggy jumps in front of me and I have a choice to swerve around her and hit a school bus, sure. you know, and how does a machine process that and what decision does it make? And whatever decision it's ma- it makes, it's going to be wrong. Yeah. And it's not going to be the, the driver may be somewhat liable, but ultimately the money's going to, it's going to come back upstream to the software or the, the camera or the car company. And I'm just wondering, are they willing to take that, that liability on? So the 10 to one thing, I would say that the, the profitability of these, the sales of, of these autonomous vehicles would have to be significantly higher than the potential downside of these ethical dilemmas, in addition to just the regular normal crashes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So in, in the United States, drunk driving causes about 10,000 fatalities every year. And complacent and distracted driving cause another 10,000 fatalities every year, right? So people texting and driving or eating and drinking while they're driving. And you're absolutely right. We sort of take that, take that for granted. But if there's one fatality involving a situation like what you just described, for some reason, that is more, that is less acceptable to us as a, as a society than the 10 or 20,000 fatalities that are caused by drunk, complacent and distracted driving. Yeah. And both of those are terrible numbers and terrible behaviors. I'm a cyclist mostly mountain bike, but I do get on the road and I can't believe how many cars that either go by me or I go by them and people just staring at their phones. It scares me. It's, it's it's like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. You're, I don't know which part of the country you live in, but you're very brave to, to get on the roads on a bicycle. Yeah. Maybe you could say stupid. Stupid's okay. (laughs) Even in Las Vegas, once or twice a year, there are fatalities involving cars or trucks and, and cyclists. I think there was one last year. I think a truck in Phoenix. mowed down an entire platoon. There was like a, a, a some sort of a cycling club. That was in Phoenix. Yeah. That in Phoenix. I think I think it was between Phoenix and Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty scary. So the other issue that I think which may be an issue or may not be an issue, but it's perceived as an issue. And if it's perceived societally as an issue, then it's an issue. And that would be the security of these cameras. And so let's just talk about the cameras, whether it's cameras that Smarter AI is involved with or just out in the market. And these, because cameras are also integrated with other components on autonomous vehicles, the security of these devices, because if they can be hacked, the, the vehicle can be guided certain direction. It could be malfunction. What steps are being taken to ensure the security of these cameras and other devices? Right. So first of all, a lot of steps are being taken. There's regulations both generally with respect to personal data. And then there are regulations specifically around vehicles and vehicle cameras as far as, as far as cybersecurity securing the cameras, securing the data, whether it's at rest or in transit. And then, but, and then the other thing, Mark, is that all of these, all of these autonomous transportation systems, they're all based on neural network models. And the neural network models really only work as well as the data on which they're trained. And so not only do we have to think about securing the cameras and securing the data from hackers, we also have to think about how do we 
secure the data internally. I think it was a couple of months ago, there was, there was a breach reported from, from Tesla where some people inside the company were using videos recorded from some Tesla vehicle cameras. And I guess the, the videos were intended to be used for training or improving the Tesla autonomous driving system. But for whatever reason, some, some employees were allegedly using the videos for some other purposes. So we have to think about hackers outside of the company. Well, we also have to think about sort of tools and processes inside our companies. Makes a lot of sense. And so I, I, I'm, what I'm hearing you say that it, it's a priority. There are some standards or regulations that, that, that govern, govern the deployment of these devices. When you talk about the training, do you create your own training data for these cameras or does your customers say, Hey, we want you to use this training data? How does that work? So going back to when I founded Smarter AI, the Smarter AI is a software platform for AI cameras. So you can think of it as. Smarter AI is to cameras as Android or iOS are to phones. Gotcha. And I got this idea actually goes back to my time at BlackBerry again. So really interesting, a couple of interesting things about my time developing the BlackBerry smartphone. So one thing was all of our phones, whether you were talking about Apple or whether you were talking about BlackBerry or some of the other failed smartphones from, from companies like Nokia, all of these phones were based on the same chips and they were all manufactured by the same Taiwanese companies in the same production lines in China, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you compare the products, what was the difference between all of these products? Well, the main difference between all of these products was just the software platform. And it was the software platform that enabled Apple first and then later Google or Android. It was the software platform that enabled them to find the product market fit. In other words, to create the user experience that would, that would generate demand. And so when I started Smarter AI, again, I decided that the, the, the product market fit and therefore the value would lie in the software. So we focused on making a software platform for AI cameras. We work with third parties who actually manufacture the cameras. And then much like your iPhone or your Android device, our cameras enable each customer to pick and choose the AI models that they want to deploy on their cameras. So I'll give you a really simple example. Two different customers with the same cameras based on the Smarter AI platform. And one customer can download a model for counting people. A second customer can use the exact same camera, but he can download a model for counting cars. Or an example that that I it's getting a bit dated now, but I used it a couple of years ago. Imagine you're a bank manager and you've got these fantastic smarter AI cameras and you want to use these cameras to help your security people. So you say, okay, great. We're going to download an AI model and put it on our camera. And we want this AI model to find anybody who walks into our bank wearing a mask. Because if somebody comes into the bank wearing a mask, we know they're going to, they're about to rob the place. And we want to call the police right away. Unless there's a pandemic. (laughs) Right. And then, of course, like two, three months later, you're the bank manager. Now you want to essentially reprogram your cameras. You want to find anybody without a mask. Exactly. (laughs) Or a spreader. (laughs) And so that's, and that's essentially what you can do with the smarter AI camera, which differentiates us from our competitors in the same way that each end user of an Android phone or an iPhone 
can pick and choose the apps that they want to use. Our customers can pick and choose the models that they want to use. How many companies are in your space? In AI cameras? Well, no, in the specific space that Smarter AI is in. Not too many that are focusing on the software platform. There are some competitive products at Microsoft, Azure, and AWS, Mm -hmm. but those products are a little bit different. Those products are tightly coupled to the cloud, the cloud infrastructure that those companies offer. So basically, if you want to make AI cameras that are, that can only work with Microsoft Azure, Mm-hmm. Make AI cameras that can only work with us. Those two companies have software platforms that'll let you do that. We're, I think, the only company that's sort of, let's say, cloud agnostic platform for AI cameras. Yeah, I can see the value in that. I'm just curious, doesn't matter what tech space you're in. Well, up until recently, I should say, one of the biggest challenges is finding qualified developers anywhere in the world. It, but you're in a relatively new space. How did you deal with that challenge? So you're absolutely right. That's one of our primary challenges. And I I guess I'm happy to report that that is still as much of a challenge as as it's ever been. I think if you're talking about highly skilled computer scientists, highly skilled system software developers, people who are highly skilled in machine learning, regardless of what's happening in the, the general economy or the general market, the demand for for people with uh, with those skills is it's going nowhere but up so that's absolutely a, a huge challenge for us let me ask you in terms of your business model do you sell your platform directly to the camera manufacturers you partner with them or do you go to let's say let's say go, so you go to the military and say hey we could design these cameras that could be battlefield ready to identify adverse events and and make a recommendation or at least report them so that you know that they're aware of it because if you're out there you're busy the camera spots something that you've trained it to 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 be alert for do you deal with the end customer or are you talking with the manufacturers well the answer is both so we we work with several manufacturers to make sure that that we have cameras available in popular or common form factors so in the same way, I guess it's similar to Android, where if you the people at Android would want to make sure that that they have some inexpensive smartphones, maybe some high-end smartphones, some tablets, whatever it is, they want to make sure that they have hardware that's going to meet the meet the needs of, of most of the market. And so we work with camera manufacturers for the same reason. And then at the same time, when we work with channel partners and end customers, in most cases, we can we can meet the needs of the of the of the market with those sort of common off-the-shelf camera form factors. But there are also cases, and, and you mentioned one of the military being one of them, where there's a requirement for essentially some bespoke hardware or bespoke form factor. And in, in cases like that, we will we'll work with our customers to, to develop something to meet their needs. Excellent. Well, let me ask you this. What has been the coolest application for a AI camera that you've seen to date and then make a prediction of what we're going to see or be able to do, say, five years from now? I may be biased, but I'm going to say that the coolest application that I've seen is vehicle cameras that can detect unsafe drivers or unsafe driving. So so in other words, vehicle cameras that that can detect when a car is being driven in an unsafe way 
or detect when a driver is behaving in an unsafe way. For example, texting and driving. And we've already started to see this kind of technology being mandated both in America, in, in Europe, and America, Europe, China, Australia, many, many parts of the world have started to, to mandate this technology for vehicles. And I think what we're going to see in five years is I think we're going to see, I, I think we're going to see a big reduction in distracted and complacent driving. And I think we're also going to see a shift in society in terms of how we perceive that behavior. What I mean by that is, I think for most of us today, we understand and we acknowledge that impaired driving is, is unsafe, it's self, selfish, reckless, any kind of bad adjective you want to, to, to apply to it. And I think most of us would never, would never engage in impaired driving. And if we want to go out and have a couple of drinks after dinner, whether it's an Uber or a friend who's going to do the driving, We'll take steps to act responsibly. And yet today, the same people will drive through a school zone with their face buried in a, in a text message or whatever it is, or Instagram or whatever it happens to be running on their phone. And I th- so I think the cool change that we're going to see is I think in five years time, that kind of complacent or distracted driving, I think we're going to perceive it in the same way that we perceive impaired driving today. Well, I certainly hope so. We've made these big changes before. Drinking and driving is a great example of, of something that just is no longer acceptable at all. Yeah. Smoking in certain situations is sure. no longer acceptable. I mean, the people used to smoke on airplanes. It's kind of crazy. It's just like, <laughs> you want to sit in the smoking section? I'm like, on an airplane? <laughs> what could go wrong? To smoke in offices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine that just to go to work, you had to subject yourself to eight right. or 10 hours of that, right? Certainly hope your predictions are true. I was kind of hoping though, because you're in Vegas, that <laughs> I could get these super cool glasses yeah. and they would tell me when I should hold or hit, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure that's coming, man. I'm sure that's coming. They might be already be out there. I'm sure there's some people here in Vegas working on that. But since one of the things that we're talking about is cybersecurity, I'm equally sure that the guys that run the, run the casinos in Vegas are working on some countermeasures. I'm sure. Chris, if our listeners or viewers want to get more information about Smarter AI or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So our website is smarterai.camera. Okay, I like um, it. You can find me online. I think my Twitter is real Chris Pichet. You can find me on LinkedIn, which I guess you did. Yeah, and I can put a link to your, your website in the show notes as well. Okay, great. Enjoy this conversation and would like to wish you a great summer. Yeah, so did I. Thank you for having me, Mark. Cheers, man. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.